Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doa Buckwalter, will introduce you to Michael Trout. This episode is the sixth in a 12-part series with Mr. Trout. Be sure to visit us on Podbean, iTunes, or Google Play for previous podcasts, as well as future episodes. And now your host, Karen Doa Buckwalter. So, um, one person that comes to mind as we're thinking about this, you know, politics versus research or politics and research, not versus, um, I think of Jay Belsky. That's exactly who I'm thinking of. Yes, because I was at Penn State in his program um, for my undergraduate, uh, his human development program, individual and family studies. And um, yeah, so, well, he eventually left the United States. He's back now. But so let's talk a little bit about that. I think that's an important uh, historical a context where we have a really good example of what you're talking about. What do you recall about his research and what happened? Well, first of all, I didn't know you were a student of his. That's fascinating. <laughs> we were both thinking of the same person for different <laughs> Well, I mean, he, he came out with a very well thought out, not at all inflammatory article in zero to three, which was then probably the standard for uh, clinical application of infant uh, of attachment theory. That was where you went if you wanted to get word out. I'm thinking the year was around 80 or 81, but I'm not sure. It was, it was again, I'll say, not an inflammatory article. It was a well-thought-out piece of research, and he merely modestly said what I just said, which is, no, it's not true that daycare is bad. No, it's not true that daycare is good. That's not even the, the question. But here's what babies need, and here's what they get in some places, and here's what they don't get in some places. And so if you're going to provide care, it needs to have these characteristics. And if you don't have those characteristics, then yes, it probably will harm children. And here's a sample in which I found that it did. And along came the railroad to run him out of town. It wasn't that many years after that article came out, which was widely panned, by the way. It wasn't that many years till he, he wasn't even living in this country anymore. And so I'm assuming part of the problem, I mean, from you know, a feminist perspective and, and other things, I can see you know, some of this reaction, but wouldn't part of the problem have been that many daycares we're not following the criteria he recommended? Of course. And they were probably a political force, although I'm pretty naive about such things. Mm-hmm. The stronger kickback came from us. Yes. We practitioners in various fields who were very protective of the moms with whom we worked, who were finding themselves in wonderful ways in the world of career and work and so on. And we, we, many of us found what Belsky wrote to be a threat to the moms that we worked with. Hmm. I was asked the question hundreds of times after Belsky's article came out. So what do you think about the article? 
I learned to do a bit of a jig, but I never quite learned to lie about any of those things. Hmm. We were asked to lie again, by the way, when um, the, the, the whole conversation about abortion uh, got linked up with the question about when life begins. And I don't link those things. Mm-hmm. I don't research into what a, a fetus, what a preborn child is able to do. I, I don't think learning about that has a thing to do with abortion. Nothing. Not a zip. But if it were, if, if we live in a world in which you're not allowed to research such things as what does a baby do in the uterus? And can babies remember uh, when there's domestic violence in the home? Might it affect the preborn child and so on? If people are going to immediately make a, a take from that a point of view about abortion, then we're kind of lost. From a research pro- point of view, we, we quickly get lost. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that people... I mean, because I know you speak a lot about um, the idea of, of um, a child's experience in the mother's womb. And like you said, you even have a video about um, domestic violence related to an unborn child. Um, and so you're saying the idea is that you are not pro-choice if you think this, what, 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 what does it come down to? Like what, what? I mean, because I, go ahead. Well, it comes down to you can't be pro-choice and support, no, that's not the right verb, speak of literature on prenatal life at the same time. You can't do both. You have to choose. Either you're pro-life and you believe that babies, when they come out of the, uh, the when they're born, that's their first day of life and they've never been anywhere or done anything or had any thoughts or feelings or experiences before that day that's it kaboom you, you got to believe one or the other if you believe that there is life when life begins and the babies lying in the uterus are experiencing life through the endocrine system of their mothers then you must be i guess you must be um against abortion right right and i don't i don't see it that way at all those worlds are separate we have to be in our clinical and developmental fields we have to be free to examine the data and look carefully and not be afraid of getting caught out politically that's not our area we're not any good at politics anyway i'm not that's a uh, really, um, yeah, I'm, I'm finding myself sitting here thinking, you know, how, how many times that does come into play and really shape what, what we're going to say or how we're going to develop policies, you know, rather than what would be good from a scientific perspective or from what we know about research and child development. Um, yeah, it's a very, very good point. Well, what about, you know, you, you, you talked about hospital practice and visiting hours and, and this type of thing. And, and 
now we've talked about uh, daycare and childcare. About foster and adoption, anything further you want to say about that? Because it does seem like that's an area that we especially seem to fail at, which, which you know, led to a, I, I think is part of the reason some of these, I don't know if I should call them fringe therapies or, or what kind of thing. I think people were so looking for help and answers. So what, what are your thoughts about child welfare system, foster adopt, that, that whole area? Well, I, I would not want to say anything about it without acknowledging some considerable embarrassment, personal and on behalf of the field. When we got caught out having maybe a decade or maybe two decades of work with attachment theory and the clinical application of it with young children, before the huge avalanche of children from, particularly from Eastern Europe and from Russia, hit our shores in the 80s. And we sort of just were dumbstruck. Families brought these kids to us and we could see the profound disorder of attachment, but we had absolutely no idea under those circumstances where the child had not only permanently lost any attachment figure, but may have, may have never had one in the first place, or may have had multiple ones back home in Romania or wherever it was, and lost even those. And we're now with people that didn't smell like, look like, sound like, feel like anybody they've ever known before, and they're tearing the house apart. And these foster parents came to us and said, anything from we don't understand to we've been living with this for two years and frankly, we're thinking about sending him back. Or I've had days when I thought about throttling him and so on. And we were, we were dumbstruck. None of our methods worked well at all. And families, meanwhile, said, well, if you're not going to help us, we're going to find people that can and so they did get many of the children back and they did institutionalize others, but others found these, what you refer to as fringe therapies, we used to call them Z therapy or holding therapies and so on. And the most bizarre part of that story from my perspective is that in some circumstances, those um, unsavory holding therapies produced results and foster families were right there watching because they were usually in the room and they saw that they produced results and they looked at us and said, well, you failed us. These other people brought us something that, that works. And so what do you got to say for yourself? And we, we didn't know. My, my way was for about 15 years to run a series of um, symposia where I'd invite various speakers to come to the Institute and, and talk to us uh, and invited other colleagues around uh, from both, both points of view in favor of holding therapy and, and against it. Just trying to get my feet on the ground. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure out, first of all, why does it ever work? And secondly, because I knew I could never do it. But yet, how, how dare I say I can't do it? When families are in such great need, the children are in need too, by the way, and these people are offering something that 
under some circumstances seem to create quite an effect. So it took years for us to get over that. Some kids had to die, as you know, and some bad things had to happen, and it all blew up. Um, but nobody, I don't think, has ever really been able to merge holding therapy with uh, the other attachment theory, therapies in a way that helps us explain exactly what worked about those coercive methods. I don't, I don't feel like there's a clear explanation for that yet, but it was a tough time. And meanwhile, by the way, child welfare was standing on the sidelines thinking, will you guys get your act together? Will somebody please tell us how to help these families, at least with the most severely disturbed children? Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, by the way, we were very good, I think, at helping families with less profoundly disturbed children. We could help foster and adoptive families build attachments with pretty distancing and difficult children, but not with the worst of them. You know, that's a very, um, I, I, when you said that we haven't really been able to reconcile that, I think that's because there's very few people looking at it the way that you just described it. I think most people are looking at this that those terrible, awful, horrible people were re-traumatizing and abusing children and, and a child even died rather than looking at it. Why in some cases did it seem to work? And give relief to really beaten down foster and adoptive parents. I think we just want to say it's terrible and awful and deny that it worked with anybody. Well, you, can get, you can get away with that for a little while, but uh, if you run into a foster or adoptive parent who had one of those kids, they won't let you get away with just dismissing it as awful. Well, no, and I, do, and I also think it's part of the reason that there is what I call some of this still happening under the radar. That work is not completely gone. I think people know where it's safe to talk about it and where it shouldn't be mentioned or who their allies are. So it's still quite messy. So you brought folks in on either side of the topic and where did you land through those experiences? That's the problem. There was no place to land. It wasn't as if, I mean, I could not demonize the demons, the, the ones everyone else thought were demons. I couldn't. They were in the main good people. And uh, again, they were producing results by which I mean to say, in some cases, foster and adoptive families who went to them came home to me or to other places and said, that really helped. And here's what I'm doing at home. So I couldn't demonize them. I couldn't lift up my side, so to speak, the side that would never engage in that kind of therapy. I couldn't lift that up and say, oh, this is holy, and this is effective, and this is much better, because we had nothing. So I just kept my eyes and ears open. I, like so many people, went and visited Dan Hughes and begged him to teach me what he knew, and mm -hmm. with a few other people, and 
um, we, we got to where we are now, which is that I think we've got some pretty sophisticated ways of going about treating these very, very difficult children. Yes, yes, yes. I, I would agree with that. And um, I, I, I do. I, I agree with that as well. Um, okay. So we have about 15 minutes left here. <laughs> the next topic we want to talk about is everybody deciding, okay, you've got something that works. Let's make manuals. Let's teach it. Let's have a fidelity checklist so we can go in and make sure all of you people are doing it exactly the right way. <laughs> and then, you know, let's put money behind that and make people learn that um, and not anything else. Just learn this <laughs> and do it exactly the way we have it written up. That's, that's what happened. And uh, yeah, that, that's What's your perspective on that? Well, you used a key word there, I think, which is fidelity. Um, as we learned some very important things. I think you and I talked about it in our very first session together about um, what this thing is, this thing that we have to offer, this, this work to help rebuild or build for the first time uh, attachments between mothers and fathers and babies. We learned that it was delicate and vulnerable and it required incredible patience on the part of the intervener. And it required willingness to be wrong and to mess up. It required a, 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 an ability to uh, sit quietly with people and watch the behavior. It required a, a, a confidence that in the behavior that is in the baby's behavior but also in the interactive behavior between the mother and, and baby that we would find the clues that would help us get there that's what we learned and when we fought back saying no that's not enough we need a formula we were gently um let down we were gently uh taught well we understand why you want the formula, because you feel, you the worker, feel helpless and lost, and you have some idea that you ought to be able to bring about a miracle sooner rather than later. And so we've, we eventually got calm about that. So that's what we knew. We didn't have a model, we had a way of being with people. If you can have fidelity with that, then the field will flourish. And it has in places where people remain in fidelity with that. My dear colleagues in Michigan, to my astonishment, all these decades later, for the most part, still remain in fidelity with the original ideas. But when folks are watching from the outside and thinking, gee, that sounds great, but I bet that costs x dollars to implement and we've got let's say a hundred families with whom to implement it could we maybe do that for x minus ten dollars that would let us treat 110 families and wouldn't that be good to give more families 
this thing without noticing that you've not, you're not giving them this thing anymore. You're giving them a new thing, a watered down or a, an overly structured and ultimately not very efficacious thing. And so that's what was done in most every state in the union. We thought if it worked with a few families, it ought to work with lots. And so we developed statewide early intervention programs and equipped people very poorly uh, to be in fidelity with the original ideas and instead sent them out with questionnaires and protocols and computers and asked them to look and punish them when they didn't find. Um, and what they were supposed to find, of course, was a diagnosis. And what they were supposed to be, then be able to do is draw a line from a diagnosis to some imaginary chart on which would be listed all the treatments for such a diagnosis. And so if at the end of the day, people were able to draw that line and therefore make uh, service recommendations, the child needs these four services, then the computer could be closed and everyone could feel happy with the possible exception of the family. Mm -hmm. Only the family could feel happy too because at least somebody was doing something. It's not like the family caught us in our little charade. Uh, often families were as confused as anybody else and they mostly wanted answers. And if we came up with a diagnosis and a series of service recommendations, that looked an awful lot like an answer. And if mm -hmm. it didn't work, well, that was, a, that was another matter. So, condemning what I just said, doesn't it? Part, well, what I'm thinking about is, um, what I was thinking about when you were speaking about that is the medical model, which I feel has um, the idea, I'll identify the illness and then I prescribe medication and treatment. And it, seem, it seems that more and more that kind of took over um, the, the way anybody working with people was practicing. Um, and uh, still is happening now. Um, I was just having a discussion with somebody at Chaddock earlier today about how frustrating it is you know, that insurance is like, okay, you have five sessions, you have one to assess and four to treat, and then that's it for that person. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it, it just, it's just, it doesn't work. Uh, it, I guess if you're looking at saving money, it works, but maybe. It no, it doesn't, because it's vastly more expensive to, True. to fail to fix the problem. True. It's. It's like that formula, which I don't have it in my mind, but, you know, money put into early intervention, you know, saves all of this money further along the way. And we have, you know, many um, studies to, to uh, prove this, but yet we still are not putting a lot of money there. It's like we just refuse. Even where we are putting money, though, we're, we're qualifying the gift that it can only be used for certain structured, uh, manualized interventions uh, on a timetable. And when those don't work, 
the funder legitimately, I think, will say uh, that was not a very good expenditure of money. Or if we've been really clever and we've covered it all up, uh, and we're, we are, by the way, pretty good at covering up when something doesn't work with a lot of numbers and uh, so on. Um, that's a pretty poor expenditure of money, in my view. So what, what should we be doing? I mean, what if, if, a per, if a clinician finds himself working in that kind of system, I mean, what, I guess I'm wondering what, what we tell them. Well, I make some presumptions about clinicians in systems like that. I make presumptions that they are people who are sturdy, uh, who have a bit of rebelliousness in them, who are scientifically um, uh, discerning, which is to say they know baloney when they see it. Um, they're thoughtful, careful. They collect data and they don't jump to conclusions about it. Um, and when they see something that something is not going to work, they will say so. And, and refuse, dig in their heels. I'm perfectly aware that, that what I just said is stupid, by which I mean to say, digging in your heels in most system doesn't get you anywhere except out the door. So I acknowledge that, and I acknowledge that because I've been in private practice most of my life, I can be arrogant when I speak those words. I can have those expectations that we dig in our heels because I didn't have to suffer the consequences of that. I know all that. Nonetheless, to go along with treatment programs that are expensive and don't work is to me a real sacrilege. Yes. And in, in teaching that way, those who are taught don't realize they've been taught. They just slowly begin to understand things a little bit differently. Yes. Yes, because um, I know with uh, your your book with your wife Mary Colarudis, the see me as a person, you're bringing this to hospital settings, and some would say that's a tough sell to 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 take on um, medical care. Um, but it seems that they're receptive to it. Why do you think? Well, they have pressure coming from the other side. And it took us a little while to realize that we had that, that um, help, so to speak. The government gives them extra money if patients fill out forms after care in hospital that says that the, that the hospital did a good job. Those are not the words that are used, of course. But, right. Um, and so hospitals got very interested in making sure parents, let, uh, excuse me, patients left hospitals liking the hospital. And they developed patient care coordinators for the hospital, many of which did really dopey things like, um, sort of like your, the, the guy at, at the, your car place that does service who gives you the lecture before you leave now you're going to get a survey and we want all fives 
And if you can't do all fives, I want you to call me and tell me. <laughs> Sometimes they did real dumb things like that. But nonetheless, the pressure was there. And so it made hospitals a little more interested in the idea that we might be able to teach you ways that make your patients happy. Yeah. That way. But we said, gee, here, this is interesting. Turns out that patients say they have much more confidence in their doctor if their doctor happened to sit down in the room. Of course, then hospitals would say, ah, we got the answer. Have everybody sit down. <laughs> said, no, 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 that's not what we meant. We meant it turns out that patients, when they feel listened to, which is manifested sometimes by the doctor sitting, then patients, A, get better faster, and B, later will say, boy, that doctor really understood me, and he did a good job with me. So I was just sort of criticizing the idea of, of the medical model in one respect with, you know, you just look for the problem and treat it. Um, but here, um, do, you, do you think there's something for us to learn in mental health services in terms of how this is being done in healthcare? Well, I don't think this is what you meant, but I, I, can't, I do want to say this one thing. Um, and I'm a little naive here because I'm not a, a medical person. But my impression is that physicians would throw us out of the office if we said to them, oh, okay, so you, you know how to do this heart surgery thing, okay? Okay, that's great. Uh, and you've had this level of success with it, right? Okay, great. So we now want you to do five times more per day. If all you have to do is not do this little other part over here or do this part faster, would that be okay? The doctor would say, uh, no, that would not be okay. The way you do heart surgery is this way. And I know best, so get out of my face if you're trying to change what I know how to do. But in infant mental health, I'm afraid we usually don't have the courage of our conviction about what we do. We don't equate it with heart surgery, where there's a way to do it that's the correct way that avoids infection, improves outcome, and so on. We do have that in, in infant health, but we're prone to let people push us around and tell us that we should be able to do it faster, cheaper, um, and with less fuss. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Hadn't thought about it that way. Hmm. Well, that's an, I think that's an interesting uh, place to, to stop with our chat today. Um, and as usual, it's been really wonderful um, dialoguing about these things with you and having you bring in the different historical points along the way. And so I just want to thank you again for taking the time to do this. My pleasure. All right. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, TraumaAttachmentCenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, 
log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. This episode is the sixth in a 12-part series with Mr. Trout. Be sure to visit us on Podbean, iTunes, or Google Play for previous podcasts, as well as future episodes. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.